Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Our book today was published in 1970, and it's called Our Bodies, Ourselves, a book by and for women. And before we even talk about the content of this book, I want to pause for a minute and think about the weight of that title. For listeners who have been with us since the beginning of the podcast, you'll remember Gerda Lerner's book, The Creation of Patriarchy, and how there were ancient laws that designated women's bodies as belonging to men. For thousands of years, women were legally bought and sold by men. And that practice even continues today in some places. Men for millennia had the right to kill a woman for breaking certain laws. And again, that practice still continues in some places. Men had the right to kill a woman's baby if they decided to. And it was legal to do so. Men had the legal right to rape and to beat their own wives until very, very recently, even in this country. And then think about the medical paternalism that we talked about in the book, The Yellow Wallpaper, and how women are not believed when they talk about their own physical and mental health. Then remember the speech, The Case for Birth Control. In the 1920s and 30s, how the Comstock laws forbade people from mentioning women's reproductive systems and how birth control was completely illegal. So women had no idea how to control their own pregnancies or births. So when we consider this historical timeline, it feels like a powerful act for women to proclaim our bodies, ourselves, a book by and for women. It's an act of claiming ownership and sovereignty over our own bodies. Um, Before we start, I also want to alert listeners that we do talk a lot about sexuality in this episode. And so if you've recommended this podcast to kids, just give it a listen once um, and then you can decide um, who it's age appropriate for. Um, But before we start, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Jessica Harder. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Amy. I'm so, so excited to have you here today. Okay, well, let's introduce the book. Um, I took this description from the website, ourbodiesourselves.org. So you can um, look at that if, if listeners are interested in hearing more or in learning more. So it says, in May of 1969, as the women's movement was gaining momentum and influence in the Boston area and elsewhere around the country, a group of women met during a female liberation conference at Emanuel College. There was a workshop on, quote, women and their bodies, unquote, and they shared their experiences that they had had with doctors and their frustration at how little they knew about how their bodies worked. The discussions were so provocative and fulfilling that they formed the Doctors Group, which was the forerunner to the Boston Women's Health Book Collective, to find out more about their bodies, about their lives, their sexuality, their relationships, and to talk with each other about what they had learned. They decided to put their knowledge into an accessible format that could be shared and would serve as a model for women to learn about themselves, to communicate their findings with doctors, and to challenge the medical establishment to change and improve the care that women receive. In 1970, they worked with the New England Free Press to publish a 193-page course book It was on stapled newsprint, and it was entitled Women and Their Bodies. 
This book was revolutionary for its frank talk about sexuality about, uh, and about abortion, which was then illegal. Um, anyway, the book quickly became an underground success. It sold 225,000 copies, mainly by word of mouth, right at the very beginning. And the cost to buy the book was 30 cents. And they kept that cost low because they wanted all women to have access to it. In 1972, after strenuous debate, the group of founding authors decided to publish with a mainstream publisher in order to reach a wider audience. So they formally incorporated as the Boston Women's Health Book Collective and negotiated a contract with Simon & Schuster that included a 70% clinic discount for low-income women and a provision for U.S. Spanish translation, which I think is awesome. Um. So the first commercial expanded edition of Our Bodies, Ourselves was published in 1973. And the preface and the first chapter, which is called Our Changing Sense of Self, um, are available online if if listeners want to look at that. So for 40 years, Our Bodies, Ourselves was updated and revised approximately every four to seven years. Um, And then that process ended in 2011. So the the most recent edition was published in, in 2011. The book has sold millions of copies and received numerous honors. Um, Library Journal named the 2011 edition one of the best consumer health books of the year. Time Magazine recognized Our Bodies, Ourselves as one of the best 100 nonfiction books in English since the founding of Time Magazine in 1923. In 2012, the Library of Congress included the original Our Bodies, Ourselves in the exhibit Books That Shaped America. So it's a big deal. It made waves and it's really, really changed the culture. One other important detail is that as far back as 1974, publishers and women's groups in other countries started translating and adapting Our Bodies, Ourselves. And they started developing books inspired by it, which, again, just like gives me chills. It's so important. Um, In 2001, the Boston Women's Health Book Collective, now known as Our Bodies, Ourselves, or OBOS, formalized the Our Bodies, Ourselves Global Initiative, which provided support to and worked closely with women's groups who were adapting the book for their own cultures and for their own communities. And... um, As of 2020, Our Bodies, Ourselves has been reproduced in 33 languages, reaching millions of women, millions of people all around the world. So that's just an introduction to the book. Well, I think we also have to mention here that one of the other really important aspects of when this book came out and when it was printed is there was the only way to learn about your body and how it worked as a woman was in books written by men or through your male doctor. And that's only if he was willing to explain things to you. There's no internet. You know, this really puts the importance of the book, I think, into context. That is such an important point. That's so true. Like you said, especially in the 1970s, like you'd have to go to a library to even find a book (laughs) or an encyclopedia. And like you said, they're all written by men. Um, such an important point. So to, yeah, to publish this book and then to make it accessible or available for a low price and stuff. I mean, that's just so important. Which made sense because women were making less money at the time, so they couldn't afford other books. (laughs) That's true. I mean, even today too, right? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, totally. 
Okay, so like always, we're going to take turns highlighting um, parts that stuck out to us. And I just have to throw in here, like these books, especially the 2011 edition is like it's like an encyclopedia. It is gigantic. And so wouldn't you say, Jessica, it was so hard to narrow down, like choosing just a few points. And so, I mean, this is a book I really recommend buying because it is a reference on every topic you can possibly think of having to do with women's not only bodies, but like emotional health and mental health. And like, it's just a women's health, totally exhaustive and thorough research book. So the first part that I wanted to highlight is from the preface, and I chose three important parts, um, and, and these parts were written by the original authors in the 1973 edition. So I'll start with a quote. Quote, you may want to know who we are. We are white. Our ages range from 24 to 40. Most of us are from middle-class backgrounds and have at least some college education, and some of us have professional degrees. Some of us are married, some separated, and some of us are single. Some of us have children of our own, some of us like spending time with children, and others of us are not sure we want to be with children. I kind of love how they phrase that, and I thought everyone can relate to that sometimes. I am not sure I want to be with children at this moment. Anyway, um, in short, we are both a very ordinary and very special group, as women are everywhere. We are white, middle-class women, and as such can describe only what life has been for us. But we do realize that poor women and non-white women have suffered far more from the kinds of misinformation and mistreatment than what we are describing in this book. In some ways, learning about our womanhood from the inside out has allowed us to cross over the socially created barriers of race, color, income, and class, and to feel a sense of identity with all women in the experience of being female, end quote. So I thought this was a really, really great introduction, and I was quite impressed that they're aware of their limitations because I feel that many people then and even now wouldn't have even noticed the absence of diversity because white middle class people have always just been seen as the default normal person. So I'm impressed that they acknowledged the absence of so many women. I kind of wish that they would have stopped and said, "Uh uh-oh, like, Stop the show. We're missing too many of our sisters and just pressed pause on the project until they got a more diverse group together. If they're going to call it, you know, our bodies, ourselves, a group or, or a book by and for women, then it really should include all women. So looking back, it was 1970. I'm impressed that they did better than so many would have. But it, to me, it still leaves room for improvement. So I just have a feeling of like if Frances Beale picked that book up and like this is a book about women, she would have just like slammed it down and been really upset because I think I would have been too. Um, I should add also, I'm going to take all my excerpts from the original book um, because I'm looking at it as an artifact. Um, It's a historical representation of how women were thinking at that time. Um, But Jessica, you're going to reference sometimes um, the current edition, right? Yes, I'll, I'll reference the 2011 edition and a bit also of the 1970s edition. But it's it's interesting to read the 1970s edition and the 2000 edition and compare. In that amount of time, the female body has not changed. But the knowledge, um, our society's views, 
and also science has evolved since then. Mm. So we can see this progress in like fertility treatments when reading these books side by side. The 1970s version doesn't not address um, fertility treatments. There, there's well, they have like 30 pages on it, very short, concise, and then the 2011 has like an entire chapter on that because mm. the science has evolved that much. Mm. And I don't know if you were thinking this also when you were reading the chapter um, in the 1970s edition on venereal disease, but I kept on thinking if they only knew that the AIDS pandemic was just around the corner, this chapter would be so different. Mm, That's such a great point. Yeah, what a great point. Like hindsight, having that, like knowing the future that they don't know. Yeah, that's really great. Um, they have, uh, two full chapters on what they say, STIs, sexually transmitted infections, and how to protect yourself from them in the 2011 edition, and only eight pages on STIs in the 1970s edition. And that's like a pretty big difference. Mm -hmm. And then if you think about with society's views opening up, you know, particular topics weren't able to be discussed in the most current, um, They weren't able to be discussed in the 1970s edition, but we have them in our current edition now. And it makes me wonder, actually, what topics are too taboo for us today Mm. that we'll see in future editions of this book. Mm, That's also such a good point. Yeah, that's true. Like things that I mean, if we think about like I mentioned how in Margaret Sanger's day, like people didn't have knowledge of reproduction because it was considered obscene to talk about like you literally couldn't study it couldn't talk about it and so in the in the 1970s that was only like 40 years after that I love that I love that perspective of thinking like yeah well we'll look back at our current time and think why what was their problem why couldn't they just talk about that stuff more openly yeah it's a great and what's funny is like I tried to figure out what that stuff was, but I couldn't even see it. So I guess I'm Mm -hmm. not open enough to see what's going to be in the next book, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Such a great point. Okay. Back to the preface. I want to share two more points. Um, Here's the next one. Quote, many women have spoken for themselves in this book, though we in the collective do not agree with all that has been written. Some of us are even uncomfortable with part of the, sorry, Some of us are even uncomfortable with part of the material. We have included it anyway because we give more weight to accepting that we differ than to our uneasiness, end quote. I loved that so much. I love their openness. I love that humility. I love the love in that statement. I love that they weren't um, afraid of differences. I love that they that they just thought, you know what, it's more important to have a big tent and say like, you know what, we're, we're going to publish in this chapter, we're going to publish these women's views. In this other chapter, we'll publish these other women's views. And then women can read both and can make up their own minds and we're not going to be threatened um, by differences. I just think that's a fantastic um, mindset to have. Um, Another part that I loved from this preface is, quote, we have been asked why this is exclusively a book about women, why we have restricted our course to women. Our answer is that we are women and as women do not consider ourselves experts on men as men through the centuries have presumed to be experts on us. 
We are not implying that we think most 20th century men are much less alienated from their bodies than women are. But we know it is up to men to explore that for themselves, to come together and share their sense of themselves, as we have done. We would like to read a book about men and their bodies. End quote. So those are such powerful points. Um, I actually love that they had that really open and um, compassionate response toward men. Um, and so I love that they say, we support men exploring and learning more about themselves. And we would love to read a book about that if you would like to write that for yourself. I loved that. Okay, so that was um, the preface. Those were some parts that I loved from the preface. Jessica, what were some things that stood out to you from the book? Well, I'm going to talk first a little bit about female sexuality that was addressed in the book. Um, I just want to start, like, we have this really odd relationship with female genitalia and sexuality. It's like we're not allowed to say anything about our vaginas or we're not allowed to like look at it or and there's this weird like obsession with the purity of the vagina and we find uh fictional ways to even like check to make sure that a woman has not had sex okay so if you haven't heard of the vaginal corona or the hymen it's an elastic fold of mucous membrane located just inside the entrance of the vagina and it has no function but Many falsely believe that if your vaginal corona is not intact, that you're not a virgin. So if we read in the 2011 edition, uh, I have a quote here from that book. It says, the vaginal corona may tear or thin out during exercise, masturbation, tampon use, or any other form of vaginal penetration. Because of this, no one can look at the woman's vaginal corona and know whether she has had vaginal intercourse or even whether she has masturbated. This is just so crazy that women in other countries actually die because their vaginal corona is not intact on marriage. These women are being sentenced to death due to this male obsession and controlling over female sexuality and flat out ignorance about the female body. Yeah, that's so upsetting. So um, I had some, some passages on female sexuality that I wanted to share as well. One of them is this, quote, We found that for many of us, beginning to menstruate had not felt normal at all, but scary, embarrassing, mysterious. We realized that what we had been told about menstruation and what we had not been told, even the tone of voice it had been told in, all had had an effect on our feelings about being female, end quote. And then they later write, quote, we lived our lives as if there were something intrinsically inferior about us, end quote. So I related so much to that passage, and I've talked to the friends my whole life about this, and um, just that feeling of embarrassment about just being a girl. I have felt that same thing. I've, I feel like I've had the same message growing up. You know, my, my religion told me that I needed to cover up my body and that it wasn't appropriate for even like my shoulders to be exposed. Mm -hmm. And 
so I knew like, oh, things that are shameful need to be hidden away. So thus, like, my body is shameful. Okay, well, back to the book. Um, there are a couple more parts that I wanted to share. Um, here's one quote. For many of us, it has been difficult to be open and honest about our sexuality. As we manage to be more trusting with each other, we found that talking about ourselves and our sexuality can be very liberating. We are learning to define our sexuality in our own terms, first by getting acquainted with our individual sexual patterns and responses and not just letting sex happen to us. We are learning to listen to our own rhythms. Second, we are learning to see and to express our own needs as valid. Only by learning to please ourselves can we have more mutual and honest relationships. And then I want to read one more quote. They say, quote, We are all so oppressed by sexual images, formulas, goals, and rules that it is almost impossible even to think about sex outside the context of success and failure. The sexual revolution, liberated orgastic women, groupies, communal lovemaking, has made us feel that we must be able to have sex with impunity, without anxiety, under any conditions, and with anyone, or we're uptight freaks. These alienating inhuman expectations are no less destructive or degrading than the Victorian Puritanism we all so proudly rejected. It's just oppression by another name. We are simultaneously bombarded with two conflicting messages, one from our parents, churches, and schools, that sex is dirty and therefore we must keep ourselves pure for the one love of our lives, and the other from Playboy, almost all other women's magazines, and especially TV commercials, end quote. So that's kind of them talking about defining sexuality in their own terms and then the power that comes from talking about it with other women, I thought was really powerful. I have the next section here on uh, reproductive responsibility, and I, I'm going to just start off with a quote from the book from the 1970s. Many couples do not even talk much about birth control. The man assumes the woman has taken care of everything. The woman protects herself as best as she can, perhaps resenting the situation and repressing her anger. As they have intercourse, she hopes she won't get pregnant. No matter how good the sex is between them, his unwillingness to share in the prevention of pregnancy lurks in the back of her mind. She can't help but wonder, if he th thinks that birth control is my business, what will he think if my birth control method fails and I get pregnant? Then he is free to leave or to withdraw from me emotionally. The birth control issue the hi highlights the central aspect of our vulnerability, our dependence on men not to let us down, end of quote. So this idea that women are responsible for birth control still hasn't changed in the last 41 years from these, in between these two books. This, this next quote is from the 2011 edition, just kind of illustrating that. Our culture and media rarely address male responsibility in the prevention of STIs and unplanned pregnancies. The prevailing societal message about contraception targets women and often ignore the impact that unprotected sex can have on a man. 
Using a condom is the easiest way for a man to get involved with birth control, with the birth control process, but they must be willing to do so. Some men are not interested in using condoms because they have received the message that it's unmasculine. They have the preconceived notion that sex is not as good with condoms. These attitudes reveal a lack of education, a lack of respect for women. They also free the men from taking responsibility for their actions. Uh, this is just crazy. I'm like mm-hmm. 42 years. It's the same idea that like men are just like hands free of the whole birth control situation. But in the 2011 edition, it's finally um, socially acceptable to claim that the man holds uh, just as much responsibility of birth control as the woman. Where they didn't claim that in in the uh, the one the version from the seventies. So this next quote is is from the two thousand eleven version, and it states, "Quote: Birth control is not just a woman's issue. Men benefit from the use of birth control in many ways, including being able to decide when and if they will father a child." and being able to protect themselves and their partners from sexually transmitted infections. When a man leaves the decision about contraception up to the woman, he not only creates an unfair burden for her, but also forfeits his ability to prevent an unplanned pregnancy by failing to take responsibility for uh, contraception. Too many men become fathers before they're capable or willing. Now, I will say, though, although this is socially acceptable to claim that men have an equal role in birth control and pregnancy, I still feel like today when a woman has an unplanned pregnancy, it's still seen as as the the, um, female was irresponsible. And the man can just get away without social discrimination about the pregnancy. What do you think, Amy? Totally. Oh, I uh, totally agree. And actually talking about, you know, unwanted pregnancies and uh, and dangerous pregnancies reminds me that I wanted to ask you to talk about sex ed also, because that that does come up in the books. And I feel like you have such great insight having lived in the Netherlands because I've actually mentioned and will mention on the abortion on the Roe v. Wade episode we're going to talk about the Dutch and how they do sex education differently so could you talk about that yeah yeah so um they're just like totally different they're they're also so open about you know talking about the body and sex um the woman's body's not seen as this like taboo subject like it is here in the states uh, in the United States, you know, we talk about, uh, we can't talk about vaginas or the fact that babies come out of vagina. And um, it's even taboo to breastfeed in like certain public spaces in the United States. But this openness about the female body allows the Dutch men to have a more respectful view of the uh, of female bodies and of women in a way that we can't really imagine in the States. So this brings us to the end of the conversation, Jessica, and I'm so grateful for everything you shared and um, wondered if you could just share maybe one of your takeaways or one last passage from the book that meant a lot to you. 
Yeah, so I actually, um, this is in the in 1970s version of the book, and this quote just perfectly illustrates the book to me. So I'm just going to read it and then leave it at that. Quote, we are saying this, knowledge is power. To get control of your own life and your own destiny is the first and most important task which can also be the efforts of a whole lifetime. But it begins with getting control over your own body everywhere in your life. End quote. That's powerful. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks for that last quote. And thanks for being here today. This was awesome. Well, thanks for inviting me. That was definitely a great experience for my side too. 